So Matthew 13, starting at verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Thank you very much, Joe. Good morning, everybody. My name is Danny, and uh, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I hope to do so later. And as Nathan said, uh, we hope this is the first of many, many Sundays that you'll be with us. Well, I'm sure you've heard it said before that there are just two absolute certainties in life, death and taxes. That saying has an element of truth, doesn't it? Uh, No matter what the state of the economy or the politics of the day, uh, you can't get away from paying taxes in some form or other. And while we prefer not to think about it, no one can get away from death. There are two certainties in life, death and taxes. But this morning, as we come for the last time to the words of Jesus in Matthew 13, we're going to see that there is, in fact, a third absolute certainty in life. This is something that is more unwelcome than taxes and more sobering than death. There is something else that is impossible to get away from, impossible to avoid, no matter how much you might not want to think about it. There is death, taxes, and there is a final judgment. Man, says one New Testament writer, is destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. And this is the reality that Jesus speaks of in this final section of seven parables of the kingdom that we've been studying over the last few weeks. If you're new to us this morning, we have been learning that the parables of Jesus, these little cryptic stories or riddles, are not as they're often thought to be kind of moral lessons to make us better people, but they're actually concrete pictures of cosmic realities. They are here to show those who want to listen what is really going on in our world and what will happen at the end. And I think this final parable... The parable of the net and the fish is perhaps the simplest of all the parables that Jesus tells, but it leaves us with a devastating picture of a final day of judgment in which all people are irreversibly separated between those two groups that he calls there the wicked and the righteous, one for salvation in the kingdom of heaven, the other for judgment in hell, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so the question that each of us is going to face this morning, the question that each of us must face this morning, is where will you be on that last day? 
See, no one enjoys talking about these things, punishment, judgment, accountability, the fire of God's wrath. I certainly don't. But my aim is to convince you this morning that this is the most important thing that any of us will think about this week. And if you listen to Jesus this morning, despite the hardness of the topic, this could actually be the happiest day of your life. And if we apply ourselves to Jesus' words and hear what he's got to say to us, then each of us could walk out of those doors rejoicing that you came to church this morning and heard the teaching of Jesus. Well, you've got an outline in front of you with three uh, sections on. We're going to look at it under those headings. What's happening now? What will happen then? And what I need to do now? So let's look at it together. What's happening now, firstly? Look with me at verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. Now, the picture Jesus uses here would have been familiar to all of his hearers. You may remember if you were here back in verse 1, he is actually sitting in a boat on the lake. Perhaps this fishing was going on behind him as he speaks. And so everybody would have understood verse 47 and the picture he's drawing. It's an ancient fishing technique in which a large net, known as a dragnet, is thrown out of a boat, lowered into the water with weights at the bottom and floats at the top, and it's then trawled along slowly through the water by the boat or by several boats. It was, and it still is, the most effective way for catching lots and lots of fish. But notice the thing about this fishing technique. In verse 47, it's completely indiscriminate. The phrase Jesus uses in verse 47 is very significant. He says, this net catches all kinds of fish, every kind of fish. So with this fishing technique, the fishermen don't target an individual species or even a couple of varieties. They don't sort of say, right, today we're going after cod or whatever. I don't know what lived in Lake Galilee. There were 25 species of fish, apparently. But they don't target the individual species. They just lower down the net, and all of the 25 species of fish that live in Lake Galilee end up in the net. The net moves along in the water and catches everything in its path. Which is why this fishing technique has two stages. First, there is the long, patient dragging of the net through the water. But then comes the second stage, which Jesus describes in verse 48. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. They sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. Because the first stage has caught up all kinds of fish, all jumbled together in the net without distinction or discrimination, the second stage involves a, a sorting out. But notice it's a sorting out not into 25 different species of fish, but just two groups of fish, two classes of fish, those that are wanted, those that are not, the good and the bad. So that the huge mixture of fish, all those different species that were in the lake at that point, up until that point, they then get sorted into just two groups. And Jesus says this indiscriminate fishing technique, which sweeps up everything in its path, 
and then get sorted out again. Look at what he says in verse 47. He says, this is a picture. Remember, a concrete picture of a cosmic reality. This is a picture of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus wants us to understand that this is what is happening in our world. Well, what does this mean for us now? It means this. It means we must not be deceived by appearances. It's interesting that this final parable comes at the end of seven parables that Jesus tells in the chapter that are really all about small, slow, invisible things having a powerful long-term effect. That's kind of what has linked all of these parables together. Small, slow, invisible things having long-term powerful effects. Think about the farmer sowing the seed of the word, for, the, for example, or the yeast working through the dough. Quiet, imperceptible, but powerful. And so, like the net moving through the water, the kingdom of heaven is gradually moving through our world, through time, slowly, perfectly, unstoppably, imperceptibly, sweeping through every part of creation because God is preparing the world for judgment. And what that means is that it is possible to live in this world, to actually live your whole life in this world, and to miss the most important thing that is happening. It reminds me of the story of two young fish who were swimming along one day and came across an older fish who passed the other way. And the older fish gave him a friendly nod and just said, how's the water this morning? And when he'd gone, the two younger fish looked at each other a bit baffled and shrugged, and one of them said, what does he mean? What's water? Or like the mockers in another part of the New Testament who say of the return of Jesus where is this coming? Everything goes on as it has since the beginning, 2 Peter 3 verse 4. See, if you look at the world, there is no indication that judgment is coming. No indication at all. Life just carries on, doesn't it? There's no sort of rainbow in the sky that, well, there is a rainbow in the sky that tells us, but we can misunderstand it. There's no sort of flash of lightning. There's no voice. There's, there's nothing in this world that you can point to in its own, on its own, without the interpretation of God's word that, that tells you for sure that judgment is coming. In fact, the opposite appears to be the case. There is suffering that goes on uninterrupted. There is abuse that goes unpunished. There is lies and cruelty that goes on alongside the joy and the beauty and the kindness. It's all mixed and muddled together like the fish in the net. And it doesn't look as if God is doing anything about it at all. But Jesus says, don't be deceived by that appearance. The kingdom of God is working. God is preparing the world for judgment. And what that means is, the most important things that have happened this week are the things that have progressed the kingdom of God. Those things that have brought the word of God to people, prepared the world for judgment. And they don't look important, but they are. So, for example, maybe you're a mum at home teaching your young children about Jesus every day. Maybe you help serve cakes at the cake stall in the 
courtyard chatting to passers-by about Jesus. Maybe you're a new student who has quietly nailed your colours to the mast as a Christian in your flat. Maybe at some point this week in the workplace or on your street, you have stepped over the comfort line to just say a word about eternity. Maybe you've made a decision like the ones that Jack and Esme were talking about earlier, just furthering the kingdom quietly at your own expense. Maybe you've made time to pray about these things this week. Or maybe you're relatively new to church and to Christian things and you're wondering whether this is, there is something in it and you've set aside your valuable Sunday morning to come and see. Well, none of those things feel important, do they? None of them are going to make the news. None of them seem big or consequential compared to Russian gas pipes exploding or the fall of the pound or the great elites of our world. But from God's point of view, these things, these small imperceptible things, this is how the kingdom of God is coming. This is how the world prepares for judgment. So that's the first thing we see from this parable of the net. The kingdom of God is progressing. Don't be deceived by appearances. But the second thing we see is that this process of the sweeping of the net through history is not going to go on forever. It is going to come to an end. And so 49 to 50 shows us what will happen. Look what Jesus says in verse 49. He says, This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus now turns to the second stage of the fishing image to explain what is going to happen at the end of time. And if you look at those verses, you'll see with me that this is a hard hard thing to consider. If you don't feel just a, a slight sort of tremor when you read verse 50, you must, I think, be a hard-hearted person. This is a, a hard thing for us to think about. Jesus is saying that God's angels, those, those powerful servants of God, the same angels that announced the birth of the baby Jesus at Christmas, those angels are going to sort out all the people in the world the way the fishermen sort out their fish. It's a hard and fearful thing to think about. So let's make sure we understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying three related things. First, in verse 49, he is telling us that there is going to be an end <clears throat> to this age. There are, of course, other philosophies in our world that suggest that Things are continuing or going round in circles. But this is not a biblical view. This is not Jesus' view. Jesus says history and our world and humanity and therefore each one of us is heading towards an end. A story with a goal. A goal that is God's goal. Man is destined to die once, says the writer to the Hebrews, and after that face judgment. There is an end. Secondly, Jesus is telling us that the form of this end is in the form of an irreversible separation. The net will be lifted out of the water 
And everything will be exposed once and for all. There will be a moment of perfect revelation where that convenient mask between who I present to the world and who I am in reality will be removed. So I will no longer be able to hide behind religion or good works or being a nicer person than someone else. There will be a faultless assessment so every member of the human race Everyone in this room, every one of us, can be sorted and separated into our rightful group, who Jesus calls the wicked and the righteous. Notice, there is no halfway house. There's no purgatory. There's no middle ground. There's no comfortable neutrality. There will be an end, and that end will be a day of separation. And the third thing Jesus says, and the hardest thing of all, is that evil will be punished on that day, and the punishment will be severe, it'll be real, and it'll be everlasting. Look at it again. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this is not the only time Jesus speaks like this. We saw this fiery furnace back in verse 42, and it's one of a number of images that Jesus uses to depict the awfulness of the punishment of the wicked on the last day. Elsewhere, for example, he speaks about being cast out of the kingdom. He speaks about the door being slammed shut, of those being uninvited to the feast at the end, unable to enter. He uses the image of debt, of being laden under a heavy debt that is impossible to pay. Elsewhere, he talks about darkness. In Matthew 5.29, he portrays the horror of hell in such terms that it would be better to lose an eye or a hand than be thrown there. In Matthew 10.28, he warns people to be more afraid of the one who can destroy both body and God in hell rather than the one who can destroy only the body. But perhaps it's this image of fire that is most graphic, and most terrible. Why fire? Because fire destroys life. Of all the elements in this world, fire is the most destructive to life, isn't it? Nothing can live in fire, and yet Jesus says the wicked will be cast into fire, and the fire will never end. And so all these images are images for an even more terrible reality than we can imagine. The unending wrath of God that sinful people deserve, and the unimaginable sorrow, regret, and rage of those who experience it. And therefore, how can I stand here and claim that this part of God's word is good? Bishop J.C. Ryle, former bishop of Liverpool, said this doctrine is good, comfortable, and wholesome. How can that be? How can this be part of that good, merry, glad, and joyful gospel that we talked about last week that makes a man's heart glad, makes him sing and dance and leap for joy? Shouldn't it, in fact, lead us in the opposite direction? As it does, for example, for American author Robert Ingersoll, who says this on the topic of hell. Listen to this. Against the heartlessness of the Christian religion, 
Every tender soul should enter solemn protest. The God of hell should be held in loathing, contempt, and scorn. A God who threatens eternal pain should be hated, not loved, cursed, not worshipped. The idea of hell in the Bible was born of ignorance, brutality, fear, cowardice, and revenge. And maybe you have some sympathy with that. Is Robert Ingersoll right? Is the existence of this fiery furnace at odds with a loving God? Is it at odds with mercy, with justice? How do we get into the mind of Jesus at this point? Well, let me say two things in answer to that. First of all, think about this. If you see your neighbor's house on fire, isn't it the greatest kindness to warn them, to plead with them, to leave the house before it's too late? And so if the fire in verse 50 is real, then aren't we being given here a gracious warning to flee to safety before it's too late? It is no kindness to keep silent because the truth is hard to hear. But the second thing to say is this. Look again at verse 49, and there's an interesting detail that doesn't quite come across as strongly in the English as it does in Matthew's original Greek. Where it says the angels of God will come and separate the wicked from the righteous, Jesus literally says the angels of God will come and separate the wicked from the midst of the righteous. In other words, this is not a simple sorting into two different places. But it's a separation of two groups, one from another, so they can have no relationship again. And I think that changes the way we think about the end. Now, some oldies here might remember a very popular TV series and series of films and novels in the 1970s called the Left Behind series which talked about the end of the world in terms of what became known as the rapture, in which the righteous were suddenly removed from the earth and taken to heaven, leaving the wicked behind. Someone would be driving the car and the passenger would suddenly disappear. You can see why it made a good film. Off they go to heaven. Someone would come back from work and the house would be empty. All the family had gone to heaven. They'd been left behind. And this idea of the rapture became so ingrained in American culture that apparently, and I've got no reason to think this isn't true, one airline had a rule that two Christian pilots couldn't be flying the same plane at the same time in case they both got raptured. I've never quite understood that because if the end of the world is coming, it doesn't really matter, does it? But I want to suggest that this is not a biblical view. It's really the other way around. It's the wicked who are removed from God's world. And that is what Jesus has been teaching in Matthew. Remember the most famous prayer that he taught his disciples back in chapter 6. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God that Jesus has been talking about is not heaven up there where the righteous get raptured to. It is God's will being done on earth. And that is not a prayer for school children to learn to be kind. It's a prayer for the end of the world, for the kingdom to come. And for the kingdom to come, everything wicked must be removed. 
and everyone who does not do God's perfect will must be removed. How then will the kingdom of heaven come? It will come when God purges this world of all that is wrong with it. When God takes this world and through the fire of judgment, mends it, heals it, purges it of all that is broken, all that is crooked, all that is deceitful and depraved, removes all the injustice, all the hurts, the abuses, the damage to his image bearers. And so if you reject the idea of final judgment, you are agreeing to put up with this world, with all its evil and all its pain and all its tears, forever and ever, world without end. To never see the age-old conflict between good and evil resolve, to never see God's purposes prevail. If you reject final judgment, you allow evil to triumph. And so, do you want to live in a world like that? And do you want to worship a God like that? A God who doesn't care enough or isn't strong enough to put things right, who doesn't love enough to sort out the evil from his kingdom? It's hard, isn't it, to think of judgment, of wrath, of anger and fire. But I want to suggest that it's harder not to. Because a God without wrath is a God who doesn't care. And a world without end is a world without hope. I was running along the canal towpath the other day. This is for exercise, I should point out. Not because I was running away from anyone or late for anything. And I bumped into three men about my age who were walking. And I could tell from the way they were sort of equipped and whatever they were doing, a long-distance walk. And I asked them where they were heading, and they said they'd gone from Edinburgh to London. Well, I fell into step with them for a while, glad of a bit of a breather, and so asked them, why were they walking from Edinburgh to London along the canal towpath? Well, they were three dads whose teenage daughters had all committed suicide. And they were raising money for and awareness about what they call the unseen epidemic of teenage suicides, particularly among girls in our society. 6,000 per year is what they told me. They are very impressive men. And it turns out quite famous. A few days later, I saw them speaking on TV to Daniel Craig. I didn't know this at the time, and as we chatted, I asked them if they had any idea why there is such a high prevalence of teenage suicide in our society and what they thought should be done about it. They shared various insights, including problems concerning social media and body image and those sorts of things, and I asked them, well, what is their solution? And they said, in one word, education. We need to educate our teenage girls about the dangers of social media and self-harm and give them the skills to recognize the danger signs and find help. And I said, well, I'm sure there's something in that. But I wonder if there is something deeper. I told them I had had three teenage girls myself. And I believe what they need more than anything in the world is hope. Real hope. 
Hope in a transcendent, just, good God who will sort out the mess. And I said, as a Christian, I believe that God and that hope has come in Jesus Christ. Because without judgment, there is no hope. There is no meaning. There is no heaven. There is only blind, arbitrary indifference, meaninglessness, and despair. And I think that is hell on earth. But what we're learning here is that God is a God of justice. He is a God who cares. He is a God who will sort out the mess and he will hold all to account. Because he's going to answer the prayer that he taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But of course, that leaves us with one very significant problem. Earlier in Matthew, almost in a throwaway line, Jesus uses a particular word to describe his listeners. He's talking to a bunch of ordinary people like me and you, and he throws out a word which is very revealing, which he backs up at other times in the gospel about how he thinks about us. You may remember the occasion, if you're familiar with the famous Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about how normal fathers provide for their children as an example of how God provides for his. And he says, if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. He's talking to good fathers. He's talking to ordinary, decent people. Not rapists, not murderers, not terrorists. Good people, good fathers who provide for their children, people like me and you. And he says, you are evil. It's the same word he uses here, the same word translated wicked here, evil, wicked. And he says, that's you. That's me. Ordinary, respectable, good. Mums and dads, grandmas and grandpas, boys and girls, people like us who come to church and don't murder people. Jesus sees into our hearts. He sees our pride our selfishness, how we have resisted God. And he says, we are in the group who deserve fire. Not one of us qualifies to escape. And that brings us to our final point, verses 51 and 52, what I need to do now. Now, these last two verses are a final brief conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And they're slightly perplexing at first. And as I've studied them this week, I've come to see that they really are the conclusion to the whole chapter. Let's have a look at them uh, for the last few minutes. Verse 51, he suddenly turns to his disciples and he asks them a, a question. It's the, the question of the teacher, isn't it? Have you understood all these things? Yes, they replied. Now, there's quite a few teachers in the room, and that yes is music to your ears, isn't it? Whether you're teaching a five-year-old how to cross the road or you're teaching a medical student how to perform heart surgery, that is what every teacher wants to hear. Have you understood 
Yes. But why is understanding so important for the disciples? Why does Jesus, at this point, want to check that they've understood? Well, look at what he goes on to say, beginning with the word therefore. Have you understood all of these things? Yes, therefore, every teacher of the law who's been instructed about the kingdom of heaven, which is them, is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. At one level, what Jesus is saying is very simple. He's been teaching them the news of the kingdom from the beginning of chapter 13. Have you understood? Yes. Therefore, you have great treasure. You have great treasure because you've understood. But it's a little bonus parable, isn't it? What does it mean? Well, if you've been here for the last five weeks, you may recall this theme of understanding is actually what this chapter has all been about. Jesus has been telling parables to divide his audience. He's been telling parables, you may remember, if you were here the first week, to actually separate those who are listening between those who understand, because they come back to Jesus for more, and those who leave with their hearts hardened because they don't want to listen. In other words, the work Jesus has been doing in telling the parables has already been doing what the angels are going to do at the end of time. The work of separation has been happening as the net has trawled through history. And so look back with me at verse 16 where Jesus describes those who understand in this way. He says, Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth. Many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. See, because the disciples understand, because they've listened to Jesus, they have seen something that the Old Testament prophets long to see and the teachers of the law long to see but miss completely. What did they see that the Old Testament prophets saw in outline that the teachers of the law miss completely? What did they see? They saw Jesus for who he really is and what he's come to do. They saw that nothing they could do could qualify them for the kingdom, but he could. They saw that they deserved to be cast out, left out of the banquet, into the fire, because of their huge burden of guilt in the way they treated God, but he didn't. They saw that they could never claim to be righteous, but he could. They saw that even the best of them had failed to love God with all their hearts and their neighbors themselves, but he had done it. They saw that the Old Testament hope looked forward to a day of cleansing judgment which they could never pass through unscathed because they were unclean, but he could. They saw in the words of the Old Testament prophets a man, a shadowy figure, 
who would come and give up his life as a sacrifice for sin, being crushed for their iniquity, bearing the wrath of God for God's people, a perfect man who would rise from the dead and bring with him the new creation. And now they saw that he was the man. And if they kept on listening, they would see exactly how he would do it. And we can keep listening too. We can read on and see him attacked by the teachers of the very law that predicted his coming. They would see him submit himself to the greatest injustice ever. The one righteous man tried for a crime he didn't commit. They would see him mocked and pierced, lifted on a Roman cross to die. They would see and understand that he was the one man who did not deserve to face the fire of God's wrath. But he came to face it so that we, the wicked, who have lived as if God were not there, do not have to face it. He came and took our place in the fire. He came and took hell so we can have heaven. He got what we deserved, so we get what he deserves. You see, I said before, didn't I, that it's a kindness to warn that the house is on fire. But Jesus did so much more than that. He went into the flames himself on the cross, And so in his perfect righteousness, he absorbed the fire of God's wrath for us. Which is why, verse 52, those who understand have an inexhaustible treasure that no one can take away. Because if they've entrusted themselves to Christ, they have forgiveness, eternal life, and will never be cast out. And those who understand these things They will devote their lives to telling others. Three certainties. Death, taxes, and a final judgment. Which means we must consider now how we will stand before God then. Do you remember the Queen's funeral a couple of weeks ago? I presume most of us saw it, most of the world saw it. And it was a great picture for us to think about of the end. See, you couldn't imagine a more public and sympathetic send-off, could you? For six hours, the body of Queen Elizabeth in her lead-lined coffin was protected, accompanied, applauded, watched by billions pulled through the streets by those sailors, carried on the shoulders of the soldiers of the shoulders, of the soldiers, sorry, it's hard to say, isn't it? Cheered on by thousands lining the streets, marching bands alongside. Never in human history has one person's burial been witnessed by so many, accompanied by so many, with so much goodwill, so much respect and love. But at the end of all that, do you remember when all the drums and the music had faded and the bagpiper had left with his lament in the background? There's a very confronting moment, which there is at every funeral. The moment where the body is lowered into the ground. And at that moment... I think we're meant to remember that we will face that moment alone. 
whether you're a great monarch who has been applauded by billions, or whether you're an ordinary man or woman or boy or girl here this morning, there will be a moment of absolute no return where we make that final journey and we will stand before the throne of Jesus Christ and give an account for your life. And these words have been given us to prepare us for that day. And so will you face that day with your wickedness exposed, every lie unforgiven, every moment of lust or greed, everything you have failed to do that you could have done, unforgiven? Or will you stand in the shelter of the righteousness that only Jesus can give, a righteousness achieved by his perfect life, a righteousness made available when he died on the cross and so bore in himself the perfect, awful justice of fire and darkness that each of us deserved from a righteous God. Well, you'll see on the bottom of the outline a prayer that will be a great prayer to pray. Whether you've done it before or never before, I'm going to lead us. And if you pray this in your heart... This will be the beginning of a new life, sure of God's forgiveness, sure of his salvation on the last day. Have a moment to read it, and then I'll pray. If you pray this in your heart, this is a great day for you because you will have entered the kingdom of heaven and nothing can take that away. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know I do not deserve to enter your kingdom, but need your mercy. Thank you that Jesus has died in my place so my sins may be forgiven. Please forgive me so I might stand on the last day trusting in his righteousness alone And live now to declare your glory with a humble, thankful heart. Amen.